You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, good morning again. We'll get started. It's good to hear the chatter. Uh, Before I jump into Psalm 90, um, if you want to, Jeremy, throw up the slide, uh, we're headed to Ecuador in, gosh, I should know this, October, I believe, right? Um, But I would uh, just wanted to plug that again. Um, Yeah, there it is, the dates, October 12th to the 17th. Um, You guys have seen uh, probably on Slack uh, some of the unrest that's happening down there right now. Uh, So certainly be praying uh, for the nation of Ecuador. Um, and, and Lord willing, this trip will still be on the calendar, uh, but an awesome opportunity just to encourage um, our, our um, partners down there, uh, Claudio and Savannah, um, and Justin and Laurel, um, and just to come alongside and to be a part of what God is doing and serving alongside them. So if, you've, if you haven't been or if you have been before, we'd love to invite you. Um, I'm actually going to be on the trip and would love for you to, to jump in with me. Uh, deposit is coming near, so you need to pray about it quickly, all right? Uh, we need to get our plane tickets purchased and whatnot. So if you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask me, or actually Jeremy in the sound booth um, is a wealth of information too. He actually brought one of the binders uh, of photos of their last trip um, last fall. Um, so he's a good person to ask about what to expect on the trip. But today, uh, we are in Psalm 90, Psalm 90. And uh, as we open, I want to ask you guys just a question um, to see if you guys have ever had a moment um, that I've, I've feel like I've been having a lot more lately, uh, and that is, uh, how did I get so old without noticing it moment? How did I get so old without noticing moment? Um, oftentimes at night, like Emily and I sit outside on our swing and we watch our kiddos play in our yard, and Lucy, our oldest, she's six, is just like scampering around the yard like scaling, going up and down the trees, and we just like turn to each other and look and like, how did our little baby girl get to be so big? Like, like what happened to time? It was like yesterday, I vividly remember holding her in my arms in the hospital, right? Rocking her to sleep. I, I can vividly recall that. Like, I haven't gotten any older. So, so how has she aged so much? Life goes by fast, doesn't it? This past week, a neighbor came by and said, I just turned 70 years old. And she went on to say, like, 20 years ago when I was in my 50s, I'd look at people in their 70s and say, wow, now they are old. And then she said this, she says, but now I'm 70. And I don't feel any different. And then she was like, I think, wanting an appropriate response from me. She said, and I don't look 70 either, right? (laughs) Life goes by fast. It's been 20 years. I can't believe this. It's been 20 years since I graduated from high school. 20 years. And if you talk to my 18-year-old self when I graduated from high school about my dreams and ambitions for life, you would only conclude I've become a massive failure. I haven't accomplished anything that when I was 18 I thought I would accomplish as I'm nearing my 40s. Life goes by fast. 
And I think when we're young, it seems, and some of you probably are still in this category, it seems like life will just keep going on forever and ever. That there's a sense of immortality to our lives. I think we all think that way. I know I have and do at times. I know my neighbor did. My kids do. And I think, if we're honest, we probably all do, right? But here's the thing. The death rate in America is still 100%. Life goes by fast. And in my experience, as I think about my own life, much of my life is just spent at this frantic pace. Like frantically keeping up with all the demands that are placed upon me in my life. And for me right now, I know it will change in the future, but for me right now, it's like, hey, dad, look at me. Dad, dad, let's go on a bike ride. Dad, look at me. Dad, read this book to me. Dad, look at me. Dad, build Legos with me. Dad, look at me. Dad, can you just sit by me? Dad, look at me. So many demands by so many little people. And if it's not the demands of my kids, it's the demands of my job or my neighbors or my extended family and so on, right? I mean, do you feel this frantic, always in demand way of life in your life? Do you relate to that? And I see head nods out there because I think it's true for most of us. And so I just want to ask the question this morning, that in the midst of our frantic, always in demand way of life, do we ever just lift up our heads long enough to pause and to ask, like, what's all this frantic striving for anyways? Is there really any lasting purpose to what I'm doing? Or am I simply on this, like, endlessly spinning wheel that's really leading nowhere? Psalm 90 that Kylie read is a psalm that's written by Moses, which means it's the oldest psalm that we have. And it captures this very conundrum of what's the point of my existence? Does my life have any purpose? In preparation this week, I learned something of the reality that Moses was surrounded by death. He was surrounded by death. Because remember, the Israelites, because of their disobedience, God said, this generation delivered out of Egypt will not enter the promised land, but will die. And we know that that was more than a million men and women. A million men and women died during that 40-year time period in the wilderness. I'm not a mathematician, but I think that's like 30,000 deaths a year. 82 a day, a million deaths, a horrific number of graves Moses must have watched being dug in the desert. And as Moses saw these people whom he knew, whom he lived next to, whom he worked alongside, drop like flies dead, he reflects on life. And he says in verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. If you've ever wondered to the purpose of your existence, perhaps the toil and trouble that you encounter, 
If you've ever wondered about that, Moses did too. And I believe that in our psalm, there's some answers for us this morning. And our big idea is is this, that our fleeting lives, our fleeting lives only find value as we humbly live before our eternal God. That our fleeting lives only find value as we humbly live before our eternal God. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you open your word to our hearts this morning and our hearts to your word. We need you, Jesus. We need the power of your spirit and the power of your word to change and transform us. I pray we have ears to hear what you have for us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Our direction this morning is simply to follow Moses' own thought in this psalm. So we're going to see in the first few verses, Moses is going to declare the greatness of God. The greatness of God. And then largely the last part, the majority of the psalm is really then our relationship as human beings. How do we relate to this great God? So it's the the greatness of God. And then how do we, as human beings, how do we relate to that God? You tracking? So Moses opens with three powerful declarations to God's greatness. Three powerful declarations. We see one, the first one here in verse one. Moses writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Not some generations, but all generations. God has been their dwelling place. And what's a dwelling place? It's it's where we live, right? It's our street address. It's our home. And so God is declaring that God has been man and woman's home ever since we've been on this earth. All generations. And and Paul, in the New Testament, he expresses this very thought in Acts, saying, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. You see, God exists as a home for all of humanity. And for Moses, he was raised as an Egyptian royal. Remember his childhood? And so no doubt, I imagine that he frequented the ancient tombs of pharaohs. And yet, despite the passing centuries and the years, uh, the years that continue to go on, the rising and fall of these great pharaohs, as, as mighty as they were in their time, there was God. And long before any of those pharaohs became pharaohs, there was God. God, a home, a generation uh, for all generations of history. Moses is saying, God is the God of history. That God is the God of history. And Moses further declares, as we go into verse 2, that God is the God of creation, saying, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And notice as you look at these words, the order of creation that Moses speaks. He's working backwards. He starts with the mountains, before the mountains were formed, and then before the earth, before the land was formed. What? God existed. That is to say that before God created the world, before anything existed, God existed. So Moses, we see, declares God is the God of history, God is the God of creation, and lastly, leaping into the realm of timelessness, he says God is the God of eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From the vanishing point in the past to the vanishing point in the future, God exists over it all. 
You know, I think most religions have a starting point, a place where it starts. It's not so in Christianity because God has no beginning and end. God is the God of history, of creation, and of eternity. That's amazing, right? And I think it leaves you and I to ask this question, well, how in the world do I, me right now, how do I, how do I relate to a God like that? How do I relate to a God like that? As we go into verse 3 to the end of the psalm, I think Moses answers this question for us of how do we relate to a great God? Does my life have any purpose or significance? And so let's look at this. So I think Moses provides three facts in how we relate to a great God. Three facts. One is that we live within God's sovereignty over us. We live within God's sovereignty over us. Look at verse 3 with me. Moses says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. It's simply to say we have no control for how long we live, do we? God controls our lives. And furthermore, Moses says, For a thousand years, in verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Moses is saying, even if we were to live a thousand years, it would be nothing to God. For a thousand years is, is like what? I mean, one of the things he says is it's like a watch in the night, a few hours in time, not even a full 24-hour day. A thousand years is like that to God. I mean, think of that. Think of all the history that has happened in the last 1,000 years. I mean, America is just a baby, right? 250 years or so. I mean, think if there was a thousand-year-old person on the stage right now. Think of what they would have seen in history. I mean, the Renaissance and the Reformation would have only been about halfway through their life. But to God, Moses says, a thousand years is but a blip. Blip. Over. You know, we live today maybe 80 years. I don't know. Maybe less. Maybe more. And, and even with all of our medical achievements, we're not much more than what Moses' generation lived. 70, 80 years, right? And, and we think we're great. And we don't live anywhere near a thousand years. None of us have the certainty or the promise of waking up tomorrow. Unlike God, we are not everlasting. Our lives are brief. You see, Moses is contrasting for us, isn't he? In contrast to the eternality of God, Moses sufficiently articulates our helpless mortality. Like one swept away by a flash flood that suddenly you know, bursts on the scene and wipes out everything in its path. All of humanity lives under this fact of God's sovereignty over us. That's the first fact. The second fact is this, that we live within God's wrath towards sin. That we live within God's wrath towards sin. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger, 
By your what? By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And I'll be honest, it's, it's uncomfortable thinking about the wrath of God, isn't it? I, I much prefer the paintings of Jesus with the little children around him. And it seems like he's patting their heads with that gentle smile of like, I'm assuring you, like, I love you just the way you are. Like, that's, that's the paintings I prefer. But that's not the whole picture that's painted by Scripture. For if you love anything, you will become angry. Tim Keller, I think, says something really helpful. He says, anger in its pure form is love in motion towards a threat to someone or something you care about deeply. Love in motion. You know, almost daily I see this play out in my own home with my six-year-old. And some of you have kids, can also relate to this. Her little sister, three-year-old, topples over her creation of Legos. Something that she has worked a hard, a long amount of time on, right? And it's, it's in her imaginative world. She's worked hard on it. Her sister topples it over, and she's what? She's, she's angry. She's sad. You see, when something we love is threatened or hurt, we get angry and demand it be made right. And if my six-year-old feels angered over ruined Lego creations, imagine how God feels when we dehumanize, slander, or ill-treat people made in his own image. Moses is linking our sin to God's wrath. God is wrathful because of our sin. Verse 8, you, you set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. God knows it all. Our sin is no secret to God. From time to time, I hear, uh, you know, lines of thought like this, that if God is powerful and, and loving and good, like why didn't he kill Hitler before he did all the evil in our world? Or why doesn't he stop Putin? Or why doesn't he stop so-and-so from hurting or harming me? Like why doesn't he put a, a stop to that? But if we ask those questions with ease, which it's easy for us to ask those questions, we also have to ask these questions too of why didn't God paralyze me when I filled out my income tax return and intentionally put down the wrong number? Why didn't God strike me mute when I yelled in, in anger at my kids or my wife? Why didn't God send me a stroke when I gossiped about my neighbor on the phone? See, the Apostle Peter, I think, is helpful for us. He says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is what? He's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When God deals with sin, he deals with it in everyone, not just the Hitlers, and not just in its most extreme forms. And in God's patience, he's wishing that 
none should perish, right? But that all should repent. And for that, we can only just simply say, thank you, Jesus, because we all are in that category, aren't we? Thank you, Jesus, for your patience. But it's in our mortality, our pending death that's coming, that we're reminded of the reality of God's wrath on a sinful human race. So three facts in how we relate to our great God. One, we live within God's sovereignty over us. Secondly, we live within God's wrath towards sin. And lastly, there's good news. We live within God's love for us. We live within God's love for us. Look at verse 12 with me. Moses prays, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Translations, do something, God. Have mercy on me. Don't leave me in this situation. See, this is Moses saying there's a full awareness of his sinful, limited, mortal state. We can do nothing but to cry out to God in mercy, for his mercy. And I know I've wondered this at times, and some of you may as well, of like, what, crying out to God as Moses prays, you're like, what can possibly happen? What can we possibly expect God to do in those moments? Like, can God really provide lasting purpose or meaning to this temporary life that we have? So what should we expect from God as we cry out to God in mercy, for his mercy? I think there's three things in Moses' prayer. I want you to see this morning. The first thing that we can expect to experience from God as we cry to him in mercy is one, his satisfying love. To experience God's satisfying love. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. I mean, God's love is critical to our existence, right? Right? It reverses everything. We've been wrecked, devastated by our sin and God's righteous judgment upon it. Living all of our days under that judgment with the brevity of our lives always right there in front of our faces. And if God doesn't show up with his love, we're stuck in verses 7 through 10 with no hope. With the prospect of eternity without God forever. But in God, there's satisfying love. A continuous love. A love that does not change. A love that's not tied to our own loveliness. A love bigger than our own darkness that we've created. A satisfying love. I love this. A love that brings you from a place of hopelessness to a place of wholeness. What can we expect as we cry out to God? We can expect to experience God's satisfying love, but secondly, to experience God's recompensing joy. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Some of you need to hear this this morning. There is a joy that makes up for our past. There's a joy that makes up for our past. To borrow language from the prophets, there's a joy that restores the years which the locusts have eaten. You know, it's to look out to the field of our lives, you know, shredded by locusts with all value having been gone. But it's to look again 
and to see God coming again and planting something new. And there's a new harvest coming to fruition because of God. In my own life, I gave over to the power of sexual sin for 10 years of my life. 10 years of saying I was a Christian yet far from God. 10 years of serving my own desires above God's. 10 years of wasted moments living for myself. And as much as I hate those 10 years of the foolishness that I chose, there's also a deep joy. There's also a deep joy within my soul. A recompensing joy of how God restored my own hopeless and helpless life and has used it for His glory and His good. And not only in my life, but in the lives of others who find themselves shackled to the same sin, the same power, the same fight of sexual sin. And I'm not perfect in that, but this is what happens as we turn to God in repentance. Our lives are restored. Not only to a place of wholeness, but also to a place of blessing. And this is not to say that this is the promise of an easy life or a life that you desire or script out, but it's a life full of deep joy. Of joy of seeing the field of our lives once destroyed by locusts restored by the grace of Jesus. So what should we expect from God as we call out to Him for His mercy? One, His satisfying love. Second, His recompensing joy. And lastly, God's purposeful life for you to live. Verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And this is, this is incredible. That no longer does the anger or the wrath of God rest upon you. It's not what this verse says, is it? It's the favor of the Lord resting upon you. And favor of the Lord really means literally the beauty of the Lord. That the beauty of the Lord will rest upon you. That's an astounding transformation, is it not? And this is all because of who God is that we take this new position. That Jesus' victory over death releases us from the futility to which we were bound. And now our, 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 our meaning in life comes not in what we do, but through the one for whom we do it. That our meaning in life comes not through what we do, but through the one for whom we do it. Which means God's work on this earth becomes our work. Our temporary activities are brought into agreement with his eternal work. That the transitory moves to the permanent, the fleeting to the lasting. So as we live within God's love for us, What should we expect? His satisfying love. His recompensing joy. And His purpose for you to live. So what do we do with these three facts of how we relate to God? What does this mean for you and I? 
I want to suggest two things and then we'll be done this morning. First, I want to suggest, encourage you, myself included, to to let us labor for the lasting and not the passing. To labor for the lasting and not the passing. And if we labor for the lasting, we, we live in the wisdom that makes the most of our brief time. We invest and we prioritize the only two things that last forever, God's word and the souls of people. God's word and the souls of people. I ask you to just reflect on your own life. Like, do you labor to know God's word? Do you work at getting to know God through his revealed word that he gives to us in his Bible? Do you labor to know God through his word? Do you labor to make God known to the people around you? God has brought us into relationships with a lot of people. Do you strategize and invest and prioritize to declare and to demonstrate the the good news of who Jesus is in your own spheres of influence? Do you labor to make God known to the people around you? To walk in wisdom means to labor for that which lasts. We prioritize and we invest in these things. But if we can walk in wisdom, we can also walk in foolishness. It's possible to be foolish in how we live, laboring for that which is only passing, right? It's foolish to devote every ounce of energy, everything we have to climb the ladder of success only to realize we've never invested that same amount of energy into making Christ known in your workplace. It's foolish to devote every waking moment on securing for your family a big pile of money only to realize you'd never prioritize the same devotion to impart the truths of Jesus and who he is to your kids. Are you living foolishly? Or are you living in wisdom? Are you investing and prioritizing in the passing or the lasting? See, God has given every single one of us a few precious moments on earth. And in those moments, he's given us opportunity to multiply those moments for that which lasts eternally. Did you hear that? We can multiply our moments into something that can last eternally. I love how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The work of the Lord involves two things, his word and his people. Put your efforts there and it's there you'll find purpose and significance of your existence. Labor for the lasting, not the passing. And secondly, I just want to suggest that we avoid the waste that comes from sinful living. That we avoid the waste that comes from sinful living. Sinful, self-willed living always results in waste. Waste in time, affections, motivations, desires. But, but also, our sin produce, produces adverse consequences 
which then produces even more waste in our lives. Some of you need to repent this morning. Some of you don't want me to say that. Some of you need to hear that. Moses says in verse 8, God knows our sin, our iniquities before him, our secret sins in the light of his presence. Stop wasting your life covering your sin. Repent. And join Moses in this cry of verse 13 for God to return. Perhaps you're sitting there doubting God's desire to forgive you. Maybe God's inability. Or God's even like, I don't, I don't see why God want anything to do with me. I want to read an excerpt from um, Gentle and Lowly. The author says, God's most intense love flows down to us in our sinfulness. You catch that? Yes, God has a hatred towards sin. Yet the combination of love for us plus hatred for sin equals the most omnipotent certainty possible that he will see us through to to final liberation from sin and unfiltered basking in his own joyous heart for us. Jesus shed his innocent blood for you, the guilty. He went that far. He went all the way that far that you might have life. And so to borrow the words from John Piper, like, stop wasting your life. Stop wasting your life on yourself and your selfish desires and just let God love you. The Apostle John says, the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God, what? Abides forever. Apart from God, we will fall under the wrath of God. And our few days on earth will pass in futility. We will be forgotten on this earth. And whether we admit to it or not, like death is coming for you and I. It's on our doorstep. So how does or or how has understanding that changed how you live? Or or how should your life change if you were to live it in regard to eternity? What might be different in your life, be different in your life if you were to live in regard to eternity? Let's avoid the waste that comes from a sinful life. Let's live in wisdom. The only way our fleeting life finds any value is to humbly live before our eternal God and to take refuge in his already completed provision on the cross in the empty tomb. Amen? We've been given through Jesus a satisfying love, a recompensing joy, and a life of lasting meaning as we live for him. This is God's promise of grand love for us. It's a love available to any who are ready to pray as Moses prays. Return, O Lord, come back. Come back into my life and live through me. And without a shadow of doubt in my mind, friends, God is ready to produce in you that kind of love as you come to him in humility. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we thank you for your word and your instruction of what it looks like to live a life of wisdom, a life that counts. Lord, we thank you for the breaths that you've given us here on this earth to make a difference for your kingdom. Lord, thank you for these truths that remind us of your love, that you've made a way out, that we may have life in you. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who don't have a saving faith in who you are, Jesus, that you would open their hearts to see the goodness and beauty of who you are. Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you, Jesus, that we'd make much of you in our life, investing and prioritizing in the things that last. Help us, God. Help us not to be distracted by the things of the world, but to keep our eyes focused on you, immovable, as we seek to follow you as we live here in Madison. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this time together. In your name we pray, amen.